For your Emmy Awards consideration, ABC's number one comedy, The Connors, starring John Goodman, Laurie Metcalf, Sarah Gilbert, and Lacey Gorenson, about the iconic working-class family who face life with love, humor, and perseverance. The Los Angeles Times describes The Connors as finding laughter and light in the darkness, and Decider writes that the show is what a great sitcom looks like. The Connors, eligible for outstanding comedy series and in all eligible categories. Television Academy members can view full episodes at abcfyc.com. From Variety, celebrating 115 years covering the business of entertainment, this is the Award Circuit Podcast. Emmy-winning Pose star Billy Porter is still taking stock of what the series has meant to him. I think what Pose has done is bring to light the unprocessed grief and trauma of an entire generation of people. I knew I had grief and trauma. I didn't know that I was in the middle of grieving and still in the middle of it. So ultimately, Pose has been very healing for me. I'm Michael Schneider, and on this edition of the Variety Awards Circuit Podcast, we talk to Billy Porter about the emotional finale to FX's Pose, and what this show has meant to him, its viewers, and to the communities in which it provided a voice. Later on, we chat with Breeders stars Martin Freeman and Daisy Haggard about how their show may be the most realistic portrayal of parenthood on TV ever. But first, on the Variety Awards Circuit Roundtable, we discuss the increasingly unpredictable limited and anthology series race. It's all next on Variety's Awards Circuit Podcast. Stay close. Back to the round table we go. I'm Michael Schneider from Variety, joined as always by Danielle Terciano and Jazz Tanke. And look who we have this week who stopped by. I need a sound effect like a ding dong, like uh, at the door. It's Caroline Framke. Hello. Caroline, welcome. Thank you so much. Well, Timing is everything, and of course, uh, part of the reason why I wanted you on this week was you you killed it with the Pride issue of Variety this year. Two, count two stories, the cover story and the B feature, um, which was incredible. So a little, uh, Thank little, you so much. little applause um, for, for pulling that off. But um, sort of what were, for, for you, uh, any, any highlights uh, to, to your experience in, in both these stories? Yeah, I mean, I think it says a lot that, you know, I was slated to do the cover story with Jazz Jennings and uh, Josie Tota, who ended up being our B feature, was actually just at first a secondary source for the jazz um, cover. And then, you know, talking to Josie, which I think Danielle has done too for Saved by the Bell in the past, she's such a fun interview. She's really engaging, so smart. Um, and I was just like, if we don't have another feature, then we should just break this out and give her the spotlight because I think she's going to be someone that we're going to see in comedy for a long time. So, um, that was really fun and unexpected. A lot of work, sure. But definitely I wouldn't have done that if I didn't feel strongly that she should be given that sort of, um, highlight. And I think it was a really fun interview. Absolutely. And and that was cool. And and good good timing too, like you mentioned, uh with, with Saved by the Bell, which I will confess 
I haven't had time to really catch up on this uh, this this new reimagination. Uh, re, re, what do you call it, Danielle? Is it a revival? Is it a reboot? Is it a remake? Is it a, re- a continuation? What what are you calling it? Uh, they're calling it a reimagining. I'm calling it a continuation because you know the original characters are back, so their lives are they've gone on for years off camera, and they're back now as adults. So really, it's just the world went on without us. And now we're stepping back into it. So reimagining feels a little strong to me, but, you know, it's, it's better than reboot, which is just straight wrong. <laughs> I know you hate that word reboot. I hate so. when people when you use it wrong. Yeah, that's all. Yeah. Like words have meaning. Our jobs as writers should still matter. That's all it is. It's just my very old lady bitterness coming out. Well, no, this is good for all of our listeners right now. Let's let's just like let's set it up. Let's once and for all, let's clarify according to Daniel Terciano, what is what is a reboot? <laughs> according to the dictionary. Uh, well, <laughs> reboots are when you take the existing premise of a show and you do it in a new version, new characters, new actors. So technically revivals would be taking the original premise, reviving it with the same group of people. But because we're now so many years later, it feels unfair to call something like Saved by the Bell a revival because it is, you know, it's not centered on Zach Morris. We're not in his high school years anymore. We're in his son's high school years. So that's why I say continuation with that because it's, it literally is just, again, like we stepped away and then we stepped back. The world has gone on. And then a remake, of course, is taking the source material and basically adhering to that source material, but just doing a fresh take on it. But it's still that original. So the three R's, live them, learn them, love them. And then never use them again because nobody wants to be wrong. So we'll just come up with all new ways of saying it. There you go. Explained by Danielle. It's just what our <laughs> listeners needed. Yeah, right. I know they're all turning off right now. Um, let's maybe talk about something more fun. Okay. I, I think that's fun, by the way. See, Caroline, we, we sort of, we, we go all over the place here. But since we have you, one of the These things the that we do... These are the semantics I'm here for. <laughs> I was like, yeah, uh, school <laughs> lessons with variety staffers. <laughs> hey, you know, this is, this, this is uh, you know, what do you call it? This, this is your TED Talk, so... <laughs> Um, So, Caroline, what we've been doing with our guests each week is sort of seeing what their sort of picks for Emmy consideration are. Maybe maybe perhaps a little under the radar that you're hoping Emmy voters pay attention to and and give some love as we enter the voting window starting shortly for for phase one. Yeah, I think this year is going to be pretty interesting. It seems like from what I can tell, there are a bunch of things that people think are definitely going to get nominated and But a lot of them weren't nominated, haven't been nominated because a lot of things weren't eligible. So I don't know. I'm really interested to see what happens. But for under the radar stuff, I'll go with comedy. I feel like I wish that more people were watching Peacock and that Girls 5 Eva was as big as it should be because that's such a great show with so many amazing performances. Any one of them would be worthwhile, but um, Renee Elise Goldsberry and Paula Pell are mm-hmm. unbeatable. Um, another show that came out, I mean, last fall, but I feel like could get something. It has gotten writing nods before, so maybe, you know, the people who are voting are 
more likely to give it a nod than people think is um, Pen15, which I think had an incredible second season. Um, I didn't think I could like it more than the first season, and then season two just leveled up in a way I was really impressed by. So I'm looking at a... I, I tend to get more invested in the comedy stuff just because comedy tends to be where my heart lies. But yeah, those are just a couple of them. Yeah, no, I agree. And actually, Daniel, in one of your recent issues, uh, you had a dissection of the the dueling theater gangs in, in Pen15, which was oh, a fun... Oh, that scene is so good. I was so happy <laughs> to see a, that. It was a making a scene feature. Yeah, that was... So it was in the penultimate episode of this first half of season two, um, the episode called Play. And it's just that moment of like, sheer escalation as everybody is more tense as the rehearsal period goes on for their play. And it just, it felt so niche to me when I first watched it because it felt so much like my theater experience. But then I said, well, how many of us, especially in this business, had that experience because we were those kids. So I was like, I I know there are people out there that uh, maybe maybe wanted to talk about this and, and didn't have anyone to talk about it with or whatever, but I was like, I'm going to make the people who made it talk to me about it. So, you know, Maya, Sam, the director, Grace, the production designer, Melissa, the costume designer. I was like, I have so many questions. We couldn't get them all in the, the actual feature, but um, yeah, that, that show this season just took it to a new level. As you said, Caroline, that was very surprising to me, but also just really fun. Yeah, the other thing this season that sort of took me back to a kid was the 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 moment where suddenly there's the third wheel, like the 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 girl mm-hmm. who kind of just like weaseled her way into their friendship, and suddenly was like, "Why is she always here?" And and hey, it's cool that we have a new friend, but she is really, really like like she's everywhere and and starting to cause some some real friction, and and it's just that awkwardness, and it's. That's sort of the hallmark of this show. And, and I love how real that feels because suddenly, like, I break out in sweats sometimes watching that show, reminding me of, like, when things like that happen and not knowing how to deal with it and the, you know, just the sheer, like, panic of being a kid and, and like, handling things like that. Yeah. The one I haven't rewatched yet from season two is the sleepover episode because it's a horror movie. It's yeah. so, <laughs> so hard to watch. And I just remember the the sheer terror of being at a sleepover where things feel like it's going sideways and maybe you're the odd one out, but maybe you're not. That one I can't rewatch, but all the other ones. That was triggering that flat that sleepover episode, right? Exactly. Yeah, yeah, that was triggering because, like, I was that odd person out. Like, I, it wasn't even a question of like, am I the odd? You know, you're you're the odd person out. Um, but maybe that's diving too deep into me. Let's get back to the topics <laughs> at hand. Girls, so you mentioned Girls Five Eva isn't really like maybe making the waves that you thought it would. That's why it's in this era of not having ratings. It's so hard to tell, right? Because at least in our circles, I feel like we're talking about Girls 5 Eva all the time. We we spoke to the stars, which will be an upcoming episode of, of Award Circuit Podcast. So the songs are constantly in my head. In my mind, at least, this thing is a massive hit. But that's not in everyone's mind, clearly. So it is sort of tough to gauge the success of a show like that, especially on a platform like Peacock that, you know, still is is finding its footing and, and not a lot of people even know exists. Yeah, I was thinking about it because I wrote something for Danielle, actually, um, a column about Peacock and how I've noticed that its, its best shows, its, its buzziest shows are all comedies with focused on around women, girls in a way where I was really 
excited to see it. You know, with Girls by Veva, you have all these, as um, Renee Elise Goldsberry's character says, 40 blah blah women um, who are reuniting. And with something like Rutherford Falls, you have a show um, run by a Native American woman featuring a lot of Native American women. Where Are Lady Parts, which just came out about a young Muslim girl band. Um, God, where are the others? There are so many. Oh, Saved by the Bell, too. So that's been really interesting to see. Um, and it's also been kind of frustrating because I feel like there are all these great shows on Peacock highlighting women you don't usually see. Also, the Amber Ruffin show. You know, she's a very different kind of late night host. And then the NBC schedule coming out in the fall, there are no comedies on it. I'm like, you've got, they're all on Peacock. <laughs> what are you, what are we doing? So I don't know how many people are watching Peacock. Um, and I, I get frustrated with it sometimes. The interface is super annoying. <laughs> but um, I've been interested kind of to see the divide between what ends up on NBC, what's ending up on Peacock, what's the brand. But there are good comedies there. I think what's what's interesting is what you said, Mike, of like, you know, our circle, everybody I know is like talking about Girls Five Ever. I know a lot of people you know, who write, you know, who are critics, who have blogs, who watch Rutherford Falls. But, like, outside of that, without having... Like, I don't think uh, Peacock has done an event yet for either Rutherford Falls or Girls 5 ever for the for the TV Academy. So it's, like, really difficult to gauge, like, who's watching, like, who's watching the show outside of us lot. Yeah. Twitter is not real life is a, is a terrible lesson I learn every yeah. day. My, my, my gauge is always have my parents heard of the show. Usually the answer is no. <laughs> I was going to say, I can't play that game. My father my still has antenna TV. In. Antenna oh, yeah. TV. Like he watches reruns of Frasier at 2 a.m. because that's all that he can watch because there's only one channel that still comes in clear. So to be fair, uh, that's a perfect 2 a.m. show. <laughs> Isn't that also? I feel like that's also on Peacock. We could just put him on Peacock. But I also, like, where do people post about their shows now? Like, is it Twitter? Is it Instagram? I know it's not on Facebook anymore, right? Or I mean, people are still live-tweeting, you know? I mean, I, I've i seen, especially, like, Pose, they just had their series finale, and they were, Cass and Steven were, were live-tweeting the finale. So I've seen some of that. I know, like, the CW shows, the, the Warner Media shows are still very heavy into you can engage with your fans that way when it's quote unquote live, if you have a, uh, you know, an, a, a traditionally airing show. So Twitter's still around, you know, but I, I think it's like, I feel like it's a different conversation on Instagram because it's not as thread heavy. I don't feel like people dive into the comments on Instagram the way that they do. And maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. But I mean, I see a lot of people on Instagram just posting like, you know, the, the key art of whatever and being like, I love this new show, you know, who's watching this new show or whatever. Um, but it's harder, I think, to get engagement that way. And also it's about it's hard to live tweet a streaming show that drops all at once because people are watching it at different rates. Like, I definitely feel like something like Bridgerton would have the reaction would have been much different, not that fewer people watched or anything, but I think it would have been really interesting to see what would have happened if that had aired like a linear Shonda Rhimes show or what well, I know we're going to talk about limited series um, perhaps today. And something I wrote in my review that I was really frustrated by is that Amazon dropped all of the Underground Railroad at once, which I think was a mistake, even though I know they wanted to get in by the Emmy deadline. But that's such a dense show. And I think people needed time to sort of absorb and react. And, 
you know, people are talking about it, certainly, but everyone's at a different stage. There's no real time to talk about a single episode. And each of those episodes is so intense on its own that, I don't know, I wonder how that also affects affects all of this. Yeah, compared to, uh, and, and look at this segue, perfect segue. Thank you, Caroline, right into limited series. And, and when you look at Mayor of Easttown, and just the conversation we're still having about that show and and so fueled by that week-to-week drop where people were talking about it for weeks on end. And I'm sure that's had an impact. I mean, it's definitely now, you know, a contender and, and in the running for a limited series, a show that, you know, we you know weren't even talking about a month ago now is is there. So that is the power of that week to week. And and so that's par- perhaps pushed out some other possible contenders. So limited series is, uh, you know, a few months ago, we, we said it was a sure thing for Queen's Gambit. Maybe it still is. I don't but... believe that I said it was a sure thing. I just want to <laughs> go back and be like, excuse me. It's definitely, I feel like, still a front runner for a nomination. I remember very pointedly being like, Clayton, it's too early to call it for the win. Um, even, you know, he's writing predictions for the website. He's writing predictions for the Emmy Extra Editions. And in a few of those, he's already kind of said, you know, this one is likely to take the trophy in September. Or this one could play spoiler in September. And I'm like, man, you are brave. Because we we are still our nomination round ballot isn't even, you know it's still happening so that is brave anyway go ahead sorry yeah yeah well you know you got to go for it that's why we love Clayton but um, so so what do we think now is is the chief uh, sort of spoiler for for Queen's Gambit in that category is it I may destroy you which I kind of feel like is starting to get a little bit of a, a, a second wind. I think Mare is definitely going to keep its momentum. Like, it came in at the right time. I think, like you said, a month ago, like, Kate Winslet was, like, on the border of a nomination. Now I think she's almost guaranteed to get one. I think I May Destroy You has got a lot of buzz. I think WandaVision will stay in. My concern with Underground Railroad, like Caroline said, is, like, they dropped all ten episodes at once. And... Danielle and I spoke about it ages ago, but like I was watching three episodes at a time and I actually said it to Barry Jenkins. I said, I haven't seen all 10 yet. I'm just taking them in. And he said, that's the best way to consume it. So when people are saying like posting online, they're watching it. I'm like, just watch two episodes at a time. Don't watch it all in one go because you miss. And it's so deep, but I think that could get in, which would, which might get in and small acts might not. I don't know. It it is just like a bloodbath out there. And what about the undoing? You know, that was so popular. Well, until that ending, right? Uh, That probably did it in perhaps. I think, yeah, I feel like now because it's so long ago, it didn't clean up. It didn't get any, I mean, got noms at winter awards, but it wasn't, you know, the exception of Donald Sutherland, it wasn't like a big winner. Um, I feel like Small Axe and Underground are both bigger contenders for noms. Like in the sense of if, you know, there's only, there are fewer slots there. If there were eight slots for limited series the way there are for drama and comedy, I think, yeah, of course, Undoing is getting one of those eight. But with five, I don't know. That's, it it feels, it feels like, and you know, it's funny. It feels like things that aired so long ago, like the battle that they have now is just, 
how visible are you during these FYC seasons, right? Like, do people even remember when you aired? Because we talk about this all the time, you know, with the, the just sheer volume of stuff coming for us as professionals who can spend an entire day watching TV because it's part of our job, it still can feel overwhelming. But all of these voters have actual day jobs. And then they go home and they have to watch these shows to vote on them. And I, you know, I, I see people talking about Underground Railroad and I'm glad they're watching it. I'm glad they're taking their time with it. But I worry that if you don't get to like episode seven, eight, and you vote before you finish it, you're not, you may not vote for it. And you may not have even seen some of the actors. You know, some of the actors are not in the first few episodes that are in contention for supporting roles. And so it's just like, well, how can you make an informed decision if you haven't actually seen this whole thing? But where are you going to have the time to see this whole thing? You know, I don't, it's, it's. I hate to use the word scary because like it's just TV, but it's scary. It's like, are you voting matters, man? Okay. We saw what's (laughs) happened in elections and whatever it matters. Yeah. That was the danger of, of dropping underground railroads so late in the eligibility season. I I think you're right. And and people are so overwhelmed now that, that I don't know if they're going to get all the way through because you're right. It is a tough watch. You need to pace yourself, but we're running out of time. Yeah. I do think if there's one show that aired a while ago that I don't think will be hurt by that, it's I May Destroy You. Um, I think that still has Buzz Michaela Cole just won the BAFTA TV award. She's been super visible. She's, um, you know, when she gives an interview, it's always smart and interesting. And not for nothing, I think the Emmys might want to correct the sins of the Golden Globes snubbing it completely. So I wouldn't be surprised if the Emmys were like in your face a little bit <laughs> um, to, to give it something. So if I was to bet on anything winning this category, which like Danielle said, it's extremely early and this is a wild thing to do, but I, I'm, I would be surprised if it's not I May Destroy You at this point. I will, I will credit the variety cover if that happens. Um, <laughs> I mean, that's a, listen, that's a huge boost of visibility. It is. Like, let's yeah. just be honest, you know? I mean, she isn't doing a ton of press for Emmys, but that effectively ends up as Emmy press because it's in the right window. Yeah, and it was a fire cover. It was yeah. amazing. That was one of the best ones we've ever done. It was wild. That show debuted June 7, yeah. 2020. I mean, that's a but whole But we're still talking about it. Yeah. I mean, we're, and people are talking about it, you know, other contenders are picking it as we, we run a contender's picks every year in one of our last Emmy sections in our issue. And we talk to showrunners and actors about what they're voting for. And, you know, spoiler alert, a lot of them are saying, I hope this show, I May Destroy You, gets nominated. You know, it, literally what you just said, Caroline, we had some people be like, it's a sin if it doesn't, you know, like it's just... Wait, it's a sin? That's a different show. I, that's, I that's realized not the one after I said it that you were, that you were going to say that. I was like, I shouldn't have worded it that way. But, I mean, yeah, we've, we've had a lot of people just, you know, say exactly what we were saying. It's, it got snubbed before and, you know, pay attention to it. Sometimes hearing the snub makes you pay attention to it more because everyone's upset about something. And who doesn't love to complain? <laughs> this is true. Um. But you you look at down the list and a, a lot of huge franchises that uh, I, I don't think, at least in, in the limited series category, I mean, a, a lot of the acting categories, perhaps, but some of these big names like the Genius franchise, Genius Aretha, Fargo, and, and uh, you know, others that have been in the mix for a while, like Good Lord Bird, Your Honor, Comey Rule, um, you know, 
all all huge projects, but it's just a jam-packed category. So you can't uh, can't have them all. I have to say HBO's doing a great job though of campaigning their shows and you know, they've got all all they've got an incredible slate and they're doing such a they're giving each child equal treatment. Like I don't feel they're not some people some networks don't always succeed at doing it. HBO is doing a stellar job of it. Yeah, for HBO and HBO Max, which, you know, is going to potentially come, come on strong with both Flight Attendant and Hacks. So should be an interesting year for, for some of the newer uh, streaming services as well. Uh, real quick around the horn, anything new that uh, y'all have watched? Not necessarily Emmy-related, but uh, just, just anything that's uh, caught your fancy in the, the, the past week or two. Jazz? I saw Fast 9 last night. It is the ninth, tenth installment in that franchise. And I have to say, it is fun. It is so much fun. It's They embrace the silly of it, but it is, it's a great action film with lots of big action sequences and really, really just enjoyable. Um, and then in the can, end, then, but can, real, real quick, can worthy apparently. So mm. <laughs> we ever thought we'd <laughs> exactly, see the day where they'd be yeah, screening F nine, the fast and furious at can, but okay. You know, it's a blockbuster. It's what, what do you expect? You know, if you want an Oscar film, wait till, wait till September or whatever. Um, but it's, it's good fun and it's good to see them all, you know, racing around going to Helen Mirren is Stella. She is such an incredible actress. Um, and then I saw in the Heights in IMAX too, which is if you can go and see it in a movie theater, if you're, if you don't have the anxiety, go see it because it is the perfect cure to everything that we've been through. And it's amazing. And Anthony Ramos is amazing. He's also in, in treatment too. So yeah. Loved it. Excellent. Excellent. Danielle, how about you? Uh, I mean, I'm only watching summer TV at this point. So I will say Schmigadoon um, surprised me. Cecily Strong, Keegan-Michael Key for Apple. Like, I don't know the Brigadoon musical. So this, watching this show, I made me actually go and look up some clips and Google it. And it is bonkers. Um, so but it was it was just one of those shows where I didn't know what to expect. And it's it really leans into its insanity, which is fun. Um, and then I don't even know if I'm allowed to say this, but, you know, the new Gossip Girl has a really interesting uh, take on the title character slash mystery that I won't say anything else about because I feel like they're com they'll come for me with like their pitchforks. But um, I was not a huge fan of the original. And so I ha and I had a lot of questions slash concerns about how self-aware this version would be given all the conversations we have about wealth and privilege and you know should we be pumping up people who have it but don't use it well and you know what is the the responsibility when these are teenagers and like you know they're born into this so do they even understand the the level of what they have and whatever um and i, I think the show does a, does a good job of of answering those things Cool. And, and Caroline, uh, what new have you liked? <laughs> what new? Um, well, right now I am watching the new um, Blind Spotting, which is Stars' sort of spinoff of the, the, the movie 
um, that came out a few years ago. And it's really, it's really cool. It's really interesting. They really incorporate a lot of like spoken word and dance and sort of surreal aspects of it. And that now stars Jasmine Cephas Jones, also from Hamilton, David Diggs's um, former co-star, and she's great in it. So I am really enjoying that. Um, also, we'll shout out the upcoming season of Tuca and Birdie, which has moved from Netflix to Adult Swim, and I believe that's premiering on the 13th. But I'm very, very happy that's coming back for a second season. I was so sad when it was canceled, and I feel like not enough people know that it is coming back. It's just not on Netflix. It's on Adult Swim. So it's on a television. You can find it. <laughs> and the last thing I will say is that I have caught up on the um, current season of Top Chef, which is the Portland season that they've been producing, um, that they produced during the pandemic last summer. And I will say that a, they have done a really smart job updating that show for the constraints they had to do. Like the restaurant wars, I want them to do it like this every year. It's usually such a stressful episode. And this time they did a chef's table just for the judges that was very intimate but extremely still high stakes so I don't know I thought that that was really smart and for me it's sometimes fun to watch that stuff because I don't have to review it necessarily so that's oh, just it's, fun it's been a great season of Top Chef so shout, shout out to that um, <laughs> I will end it by mentioning the thing that everyone was talking about this weekend but it kind of to me it lived up to the hype uh, the, the Bo Burnham special inside uh, the songs are just incredible and it is such a just a fascinating watch. So well done. All solo over the past year by Bo Burnham. Uh, apparently he's releasing the album of this music on Thursday. So today, as you're listening to this, uh, I will be running out and to grabbing it or streaming it. Uh, so good. So well done. And now an Emmy contender because they dropped it on May 30th. So look at that. <laughs> they got it under the wire. And so, so who knows? We might be talking about Bo Burnham uh, Emmy winner as well coming up. So thank you so much caroline for stopping by thank you for having me this was fun yeah definitely and danielle and jazz we'll see you next week it's variety's award circuit podcast i'm michael schneider billy porter's pray tell on fx's pose was a beacon of light and love for his friends and chosen family within the ballroom community The character also helped the actor break historical ground when Porter won the Lead Drama Actor Emmy in 2019 for the first season of the period piece, he became only the fifth black actor and the first openly gay actor to take that trophy. But unfortunately, all good things must come to an end and Pose signed off with a shortened third season. I want to be remembered as a representation of all that the balls could be. Hope joy and family we deserve to have our dreams fulfilled let's give these children a show they will never forget all right it's time for a spoiler alert here if you haven't watched the pose finale yet then stop right here go watch it and then come back okay all right you back all right let's jump in Porter's character, ballroom MC and father figure Pray Tell, had quite the journey in the final season, returning to his hometown to make peace with his family and revisit his first love, restarting things with love interest Ricky, and getting into a clinical trial for a new AIDS drug. But when Ricky revealed his own health was deteriorating, Pray Tell pretended he had extra meds, but really just gave Ricky his own. This sacrifice resulted in Pray Tell passing away. See, I told you this was a spoiler alert. 
Variety's Danielle Terciano checked in with Porter to discuss that emotional final episode and what it was like to film the last season of Pose during the pandemic. They began by discussing when and how he found out about Praytel's fate. I knew in season one that ultimately Praytel wasn't going to make it and Blanca would. Wow. Okay. They had a real understanding about where they wanted the show to go early on. So I knew that ultimately, whatever, however long the series went at the end, I would not be making it. You know, I'm 51 years old. I lived through the AIDS crisis. I was there. The trauma is real. The grief is real. Um, I think what Pose has done is bring to light the unprocessed grief and trauma of an entire generation of, of people. Um, I knew I had grief and trauma. I didn't know that I was in the middle of grieving and still in the middle of it. Yeah. So ultimately, Pose has been very healing for me. There's a lot of survivor's guilt that comes along with many things, with surviving the plague, with surviving the hood. Um, you know, there's a lot of, like, guilt, survivor's guilt that does nobody any good that must be addressed. And um, I don't know, this, you know, pose, it really just made me have to really just look at all of it and really sort of ask myself, do you want to heal and tell a different story? Or do you want to be in the same quagmire of shame for the rest of your life? Shame and pain and trauma and all of that for the rest of your life. Do you, yeah. it's like, it's not fun actually. So I'm tired. I've spent the better part of half a century not dealing with my trauma, not working towards healing in a real way. You know, it's real now as a result of the beautiful experience that um, Pose has been. I mean, what, what does that look like? Is, is, working on the show, doing some of those scenes, was that helpful for the, the healing process to start the healing process? Or is it really a conversation, a journey that you had to start once the show was over for you? Honey, I've been in the process of healing since my mid twenties. Okay. So, you know, I started going to therapy when I was 25. I've been there ever since. What was different about this year in particular is quarantine and then discovering the difference between regular therapy and then like real targeted therapy. I went into trauma therapy, specifically trauma therapy. You know, there are things to do. There are exercises to engage in. There, there's a system that is in place, a beautiful, beautifully crafted um way to 
help get to the other side of trauma. And it is not easy. And it takes a lot of work. And it's not fast. It's not quick. It's not, you know, it's not perfect as a perfectionist. You know, I have a little bit of perfectionism syndrome. You know, all of the things that aren't good. All of the things that you have to face. (laughs) Like, yep. (laughs) I got to face that. Like I'm a human being and I'm allowed to be a human being and it's okay to not be okay. And it's okay to not feel good and not be perfect and not, um, yeah, it's okay. It's okay to be exactly where you are. It's okay. Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's interesting too, that, you know, you were talking about the survivor's guilt that you felt and the show brings that in. I mean, seeing Ricky, especially, knowing what pray tell did for Ricky to, to keep him healthy and keep him alive. Like the show does start to have that conversation. Was that an area where you got very involved collaboratively, maybe with the writers or the directors um, or even Delon to, to talk about, you know, the portrayal of that? No, I, it's I, my process in uh, surrounding this show is much it, it, you know, like the, the, our writers and our creators, they really are observant, you know, of us and our lives. And they pull from things and they ask us things. But, you know, and they and they have, you know, implemented some of our own stories. And, you know, you know, you go to work and you play the scene. We didn't have to talk about it a lot. Because it's what we live every day. You know, there wasn't a whole lot of talking because this is a show where you actually need the real people to tell the story. So they got the real people to tell the story. So we've lived it. We don't have to talk about it. We've actually all lived a, lived a version of, of the stories that we're telling. So I think that's what makes it so authentic. You know, that's what makes it feel so real um, is because it is. <laughs> yeah. No, it's so true. I mean, you know, I I did not grow up in the ballroom culture. So for me, watching you guys portray that opened my eyes to a, a new community. But it also, I think, as you just said, I think if it would have been done with people who were not actually a part of the community, I don't think that I would have felt like I was seeing something real in it yeah understanding what it really is you know it's yeah. it's, it's an interesting imagine that i know imagine <laughs> that the storytellers we're just now getting to the place Isn't where that... the people whose story we're telling is at the center of telling exactly it. exactly which sounds crazy but it also sounds crazy to me that you know it took so long to even bring a show about ballroom culture and about the aids epidemic to television at all, you know? I mean, the fact that well, this is such I, a part of so many people's lives. Yeah, I just, you know, I, 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 I wanna be very clear about my stance on that. It doesn't matter how long it took. We're here now. We're here now. Right. If you're concerned about how long it took, you're not in the present. Mm. And if you're not in the present, then the real story and the real healing can't happen. 
If I'm mad that I'm just getting here, then I'm not doing the work. Stay present. We're here now. We may have been the first, but we're most definitely not going to be the last. Thank you for bringing that back into our consciousness, Miss Vice President Kamala Harris. Right. <laughs> you know, right. it's like, no, it's not right. Yes, it's bullshit. And we're here now. And let's bring everybody else in the room, too. <laughs> you know, that's where I'm at. Yeah, yeah. And that, honestly, that's the healthy place to be. Being in the room has given me the power to stay in the room. I'm focused on staying in the room, not worried about that I wasn't here before. I'm focused on staying in the room and bringing everybody I know with me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I do, I do want to talk, though, I mean, as you're talking about, you know, being in the room, having everybody with you, I want to talk about some of these final balls because, um, you know, there's some, there's some very... I'm going to say tragic. I mean, there's some very sad things that happened this season to your character, you know, even outside of the fact that we lose him, like seeing him struggle with alcoholism in the beginning of the season and, and seeing, you know, the, the push and pull of his, of his childhood. And, and is he going to have what he wants when he visits his family? But then we do also have some really beautiful celebratory moments as well. So I want to talk to you a little bit about what that was like filming these, these final ball scenes you know, amid COVID, amid like the, our world is in shambles, but you guys are able to find something to celebrate. How different was it this season? And, and did you feel like there was more of a need for those, those moments to kind of pop? Well, we didn't really get to the balls until the last final week of shooting because of all of the COVID protocols and such. And they were trying to wait as long as possible to see how much we could do. Um, you know, it's not lost on me that the show is about a very specific time in history when the world was in a global pandemic, epidemic, and now we're sort of going through the same thing collectively. I think it was really smart how um, the parallels have been drawn this season um, because I think what the people need the most is inspiration. What the people need the most is to be reminded that it's only through the collective energy of coming together and leading with love that any of this goes away and that we get to the other side of this. It's only inside of that. We've done it before. Those who don't know their history are doomed to repeat it. Blah, 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 blah. And yet here we are again. My goal, my hope, and my prayer is that our show can be a catalyst for real change, you know, from the inside out, personally. You know, we, the people, are the only ones that could change the world. And we have to show up for each other. Across the board, we have to show up for each other. I don't know that that's happening in the way that it should right now. I know there are a lot of people on the planet who are trying. And there are a lot of people on the planet who don't give a fuck. Yeah. Yeah. So my prayer and my hope is that there are more of us than them. And yes, it's us and a them. Mm -hmm. We didn't do it. I didn't do it. Right. But we have to acknowledge what is. 
We have to be able to name the thing, whatever the thing is, so that we can heal the thing. You know, America don't like that part. America likes to act like things didn't happen. And so then we're stuck. We're stuck in the same shit that we've been in. And none of it is going to change until there's a collective acknowledgement that the thing is the thing. We're still, I'm still turning on the news and seeing white people tell black people that there is no systemic racism in this, in, in America. I don't, it's like you. Yeah. How can you heal the thing until you recognize that there is a thing? Yeah. I don't know. And that's interesting because I don't know, like, is that, to me, that that's a question of like, are they in denial or are they living in a different world? It doesn't matter world? what they, <laughs> it doesn't matter. That's crazy. It doesn't matter. It's a lie. It's wrong. It's not right. right. And this is why we're still here. Yeah. But I mean, you, I mean, you've had three seasons of this show and, you know, we, we talk so much about the impact of the show, you know, in, in the industry and, and beyond the industry. So like, yes, we know that these people are here that, that still are living in archaic mindsets, but I want to hear the flip of that too. I mean, what do you hear from people in terms of, you know, the way the show has inspired them or the, the the things that the conversations that we've been able to have maybe? Well, every day. I mean, I've been able to have conversations with my family, even just this weekend, just this past weekend as a result of Pose and as a result of the fact that, you know, people in my immediate family are, have been exposed to the life that I lived without them. Right. Yeah. And I mean, that's, I mean, the show depicts that as well, like going into Praytel's backstory. I mean, it's a little, maybe a little art imitating life or the, the flip. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's, you know, if I don't ever say anything else in my life, I will have said it. And I'm already saying a whole lot of other things. It's time for Billy to tell a different story. And I'm getting ready to tell that story. And everybody's going to see it and everybody's going to hear it. And it's all, you know, it's all joy. It's all love. It's all healing. It's all forward motion. The world only spins forward. That's what I'm living on. Mm -hmm. I just feel so so blessed and lucky to have lived long enough to see this day and to have been the vessel, to have been chosen to be the vessel to tell this story. You know, it's my story. Yeah. It's mine. It is my story. You know, it's my complete story. You know, including the HIV that you will all now know of. You know, you can't speak about this, but May 19th, you know, as of May 19th, the world will know. You know, I've been living with HIV since 2007. And look at me. You know, it's like we manifest what we speak, what we believe. That's what we manifest. Speak life into yourself. It don't matter what anybody else says. Speak life into yourself and keep doing that. Does that make it more challenging though for you like when you're playing this character who is so close to you is that harder because you have to go to these darker places not for me okay <laughs> not for me 
That's the whole point. Yeah. That's why I'm an artist. That's my calling. That's my purpose. That's my ministry. That's why I'm here. So it's not, I mean, it's difficult to do, you know, it's hard, you know, it's complex. (laughs) It's not easy, Mm -hmm. but that's the whole point for me. That's what I, you know, as an artist, that's what I believe I'm here for. You know, artists, how civilizations heal. That's what uh, Toni Morrison says. I'm going to read you my favorite quote. You know, Toni Morrison says, um, this is precisely the time when artists go to work. Um, There's no time for despair. There's no place for self-pity. There's no need for silence. There is no room for fear. We speak, we write, we do language. That is how civilizations heal. You know, that's all I'm interested in, y'all. If it's not going to heal somebody, if it's not going to do, you know, it's not about me and my own ego. I've had enough (laughs) of all that. You know, and it's all good. It's great. But, like, I'm in this for a reason. Mm -hmm. I do this for a reason that's beyond myself and beyond my bank account. Right. You know, and beyond my... Instagram followers. You know, it's 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 deeper than that for me. Right. I mean, it, you you seem very like perfectly aligned this show with that message, right? Like, not every actor is obviously in that situation where like a lot of actors want to be able to do that, but they don't get the role, they don't get the show that allows. I'm 51 years old. It just happened four years ago. Right. Right. So, but that's but I asked for it. Okay, that was where I was going. Was I was going to ask like what you I've, do when I've when been you're asking not there. for it for years. I've been asking for it. I've been speaking it into my existence. I've been you know putting it on my vision board. I've been writing it in my journal. I've been you know all of the stuff that you're that one is supposed to do to 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 bring um, to manifest what they want, what what a person wants. I'm a living proof of it. Mm-hmm. You know, and there was a long time when it wasn't this. There was a long time when it was not this kind of work right. for me. And that's the thing. I mean, this season really gave you a lot, like a lot, obviously, quote, to do, but a lot of the different spectrum of emotions. I mean, we, I touched on earlier, like there's, he struggles with alcoholism in the beginning and there's a relationship with Ricky and visiting his family and like just, they pack a lot of story. And facing in. death. And facing death, of course. Um, where... When when you're when you're faced with just such dense scripts of so much material, so much emotional material, where do you even start? How do you break it down? How do you like how what is your process in terms of getting into the individual pieces? Can you compartmentalize? Can you say, I'm gonna I need to focus on the, the mindset for this moment and it's very different for this moment? This was you know, you're having an actor process conversation. I tend to do that. Everyone to, hates hard, it. And it's hard to talk about process when, in fact, the process for me has been living it. I lived it. That was my process. So is it is it just accessing your own... All I needed to do was show up with this particular job in this particular instance. It's not like this all the time. But for this particular job in this particular instance, I have lived absolutely every single part of it. You know, one of the protests Mm. or like two of the protests, actually 
all of the protests from season three. I'm sorry, uh, the season finale. Mm-hmm. You know, I was there. I was already living in New York City when those things were happening. I was either there or I was watched it on the news in real time or I was, you know, like I was there. Yeah. I was there for the whole thing. You know, so it's like that was the gift of it for me was that a lot of my work was just having lived. Yeah. <laughs> and all I had to do was just access my real life. But I mean, when you lived it, it was years ago. You didn't have the hindsight you have now when you're telling these stories. Did you notice when you were telling these stories now that we were telling them through a different lens, you related to them differently in any way? And especially, and I'm, you can correct me if this is not an area where it was true for you, but I'm thinking specifically of, of things like, you know, getting him into the trial at all, the fact that they're, you know, not really allowing black or brown people in, you know, that's a conversation that we still are having, but we're having it with more context. Yeah, I think, the, yes. I, I mean, you know, just the context of the antiretroviral drugs, you know, coming out in 96, it's like, you know, pray tell didn't make it, but I did. You know, that's the context that we have. You know, so we can speak about life and living. We can speak about choosing life and living because we got to the other side. That's the perspective. When you think about, you know, the the ending of the show, Pray Tell's ending, but then also the ending of the show as a whole, how strongly did you feel that hope needed to be a big part of the message in in, as you're speaking to choosing life? If it's it's not going to be hopeful, there is no reason to do it. That's how I feel as an artist. It's like, if I'm going to take you to the depths of hell, I have to leave you with some hope. That's my aesthetic. That's not everybody's aesthetic. I'm glad that this was our, you know, our creative aesthetic. I'm glad that it was their aesthetic. You know, because hope is hard when you're in the middle of the mess, when you're in thick of it, it's hard. It also feels hard because, like, historically, so many of these stories, they mine the trauma of them. And there's yeah. not, I mean, we don't have a lot of opportunity, but we also don't have a lot of reference points to see, as you were talking about, like, the beyond. And so giving this opportunity, it feels like you couldn't have necessarily done it any other way. But I'm curious also, you know, if you feel like there's a, there's a level of, We've done the trauma. I don't want to do it anymore because that's not all we are. Well, I think I said earlier, it's time to tell a different story. I'm ready to tell a different story. If I have never, if I never do anything else again in my life, this will have been enough. And now I'm telling a different, a new story. One of healing, one of regeneration, one of life. You know, and that doesn't mean that there's no trauma in it. You know, the Buddha says life is suffering. So when we say yes to that fact, then we suffer less. As opposed to this idea that everything is supposed to be hunky-dory and happy all the time. That's not possible. It's impossible. You know, so receive the knowledge that everybody suffers. Life is suffering. Oh, okay. (laughs) Then it's a little less. (laughs) Because I'm expecting it. 
Sure, yeah. As opposed to having some expectation that something's wrong if it's not. Nothing's wrong because you have suffering and trauma. Nothing's wrong. But you can come through it. Right. Yes. Can you, I mean, I, I know it's probably early, but can you speak to, like, when you leave a character like Pray Tell behind, how do you want to take that next step? You said, you know, obviously new stories, but how different do you need your next role to be in order to? I don't know. You know, it comes, it'll come. You know, I got a bunch of stuff that I'm doing. You know, my next role that the world is going to see is the fairy godmother in Cinderella. Mm-hmm. That's Which is different. Yeah. It's a new story, honey. Yeah, absolutely. It's a new, it's a brand new story. Like for real brand new. Well, thank you. We're, we're looking forward to seeing that. And thank you for joining us on Award Circuit. Thank you. <laughs> That's Billy Porter, star of Pose. Catch up on the series via FX on Hulu. After the break, Breeders stars Martin Freeman and Daisy Haggard will make you feel okay if you've chosen not to be a parent. From Los Angeles, this is Variety's Award Circuit Podcast. For your Emmy Awards consideration, ABC's number one comedy, The Connors, starring John Goodman, Laurie Metcalf, Sarah Gilbert, and Lacey Goranson, about the iconic working-class family who face life with love, humor, and perseverance. The Los Angeles Times describes The Connors as finding laughter and light in the darkness, and Decider writes that the show is what a great sitcom looks like. The Connors, eligible for outstanding comedy series and in all eligible categories. Television Academy members can view full episodes at abcfyc.com. And we're back. It's the Award Circuit Podcast. I'm Michael Schneider. Time has moved on in season two of the FX comedy series Breeders, the show that explores the parental paradox that you'd happily die for your children, but quite often also want to kill them. Luke, played by Alex Eastwood, is now 13 years old, and Ava, played by Eve Purnell, is 10, serving up brand new parenting challenges for Paul, played by Martin Freeman, and Allie, played by Daisy Haggard. I recently spoke with Freeman and Haggard about the changes in season two and what it's like to now be playing the parents of older kids and the dynamic that comes with it. I began by asking them how parents usually react to the show. I get people thanking me, actually. Yeah, well, thanking us, you know, thanking us for the show. Yeah. 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 Um, because it sort of makes people hopefully feel a little bit less alone or, or you know, less wrong right. or something. Yeah. Or even maybe feel like they're slightly better parents. Maybe they feel like, oh, maybe I have it a little oh, more under control. Either be smug or feel recognized, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And if they're feeling smug, I don't believe them anyway. Right. <laughs> yeah. That's why, why this show, was why I wanted to make the show. Because... Uh, I didn't. Be, I, I just didn't believe people. I thought, you know, I, I, I thought either people are lying or they're not there. You know, you're either not at home or you're lying. If you if you are presenting to the world something that is just like purely Little House on the Prairie, and actually, even Little House on the Prairie had their moments. Yeah. Well, and and we live in an age of, of social media where if you just look at Instagram, you know, everyone's lives look perfect. They have the perfect kids. They have the perfect setup and. Sometimes it's it's hard to remember that. No, they're 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 showing you the best foot, but they're they're struggling just like you're struggling. So 
It's yes. I mean, that must be true. That yeah. That that I assume that's true. So talk a little bit about season two and the decision to make that jump to sort of you know go deeper into the marriage, but also showcase the kids as they're entering their their preteen and teen years and and the stories that that come out of it. What was that discussion in sort of making that leap? The, the time jump was always going to happen, you know, from when uh, Chris, Simon, and I were talking about doing the show and developing the show. That we always wanted to to um, jump up in age between series one and series two, um, partly because it's, you know there are different interesting things going on in the life of a child and therefore in in the house in the household, um, and also because you can do more with the actors. You know, there's I mean, with the best will in the world, you can you can only expect to do so much with very small children. Um, and so I, th- I think the actors that we have, the, I mean, the actors we had last year were fantastic, but um, we've got a great pair this this year who are able to sort of rise to that challenge of what they're being asked to do. Um, and that those sort of, yeah, the challenges that come for the characters, they're also challenges for the actors, you know, including me and Daisy. You know, um, you know me and Daisy are still <laughs> trying our best, but this time we were trying our best with uh, with people who were a little bit older. Um, yeah, yeah, that, that was always the plan. Yeah, yeah. And, and Daisy, how did uh, you know? What were your thoughts in, in sort of how much things were going to change, and and, and uh, you know, the focus uh, of these relationships was going to change in season two. Well, I just really, um, I really enjoyed the the, the shift because, I, and I have children that are young and the stage before. So for me, I always say that the thing about breeders, it's like the acts is the future, the fearful future, my own fearful future. I see what's coming, and so, um, and so there's a whole other sort of world and wealth of storylines and 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 um, you know issues and troubles that you can therefore explore because the kids are that bit older. Just, just in terms of the, you know, what it's like to have teenagers, which obviously I don't know, I don't know what that's like yet. I get a glimmer from playing Ali, <laughs> um, but then, you know, as Martin said, you have these brilliant kids who can hold their own, more than hold their own in a on a four page scene, better than me often, <laughs> four page scene, <laughs> showing me up, uh, and uh, you know, and so you get to really kind of, you know, dig in and play juicy scenes with them. Um, because they can learn four pages quite fast because their brains are so clever. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Are you prepared now for those teenage years or are you terrified now for those teenage years? I'm terrified. I'm terrified because I'm sort of, you know, three and six-year-old. It's, it's you know, it's a scrabble. I I have a three-year-old that sleeps on my face. You know, it's all full-on and crazy. But, um... But when I think about these grown-up problems, I think, oh gosh, that's when you, you know, it's a whole other phase of of, of parenting, isn't it? And it's it's terrifying. (laughs) Yeah. No, it's it's a reminder when you do have those young kids and you think, oh, it gets better. Some ways it does. Some ways <laughs> it's much more difficult and, and the issues that you have to deal with with the, the kids. Uh, you know, uh, talk a little bit about that in, in sort of, uh, you know, uh, uh, the, the the issues that the kids face, like anxiety, sort of, you know, what were sort of the thoughts in, in sort of, you know, bringing a, a deeper, uh, you know, sort of more complicated storyline to you know parenting season two well i think it was it was it was that it was the complication or the, the complexity of it i suppose that we were um embracing rather than thinking of it as issues led or issues based i mean obviously there is a lot of talk um at the moment about um mental health issues and, and quite rightly so but I, I think we because we had always decided to sh- shove it forward a few years um and because Luke 
as a character had um, had displayed some anxiety um, in series one, I guess it was logical that you know either it had all magically gone away or that it might have developed and to a certain extent solidified by the time he was 12, 13. Um, and it's all, you know, in a sort of um, ruthless, dramatic writer's way, I suppose, or comedic writer's way, it's all grist to the mill, you know. Yeah. It's all stuff that you can be used to either dramatic or comic effect. Um, and so, yeah, so Luke has anxiety, and and Ava also she she has her own little dalliance as well. Uh, well, I can say it to you because everyone in America has seen it. Not everyone in America has seen it. <laughs> if only that were true. If only that were true. <laughs> but the people, have, it's been out. So yeah, she she takes a little left turn at religion as well. So um, those are things that neither of which uh, are a problem as far as I'm concerned. But um, but as far as Paul and Ali are concerned, Ava's dalliance with religion has come out of nowhere um and is surprising um let's just say that and and paul particularly i suppose takes it upon himself to try and understand what what that's about because he takes it as well I th- you know I, I want her to be my best mate and if, if we were best mates she would have told me about that and she's been hiding it because of paul's uh, alleged but also quite true uh, temper and she thought he, he'd go mad, but, you know, she suddenly found Jesus, actually. She discovered that, no, actually what upset him was that she didn't think, he, she didn't think she could confide in him. Um, so, yeah, I mean, they both, yeah, they both got these, um, well, it's called being alive, isn't it? It's not even issues. It's, yeah. you know, it's yeah. just called being alive. Yeah. Stuff Complications of life, right? Yeah. Yeah, no, and and that uh, like like you said, it's it's uh, you know great just for, for for the mill, and and you you could you know do these these stories for forever. Um, talk a little bit about you know so much of the focus on season one was on on Paul and Allie's relationship, and uh, you know when you throw in older kids, more complications, uh, what that means for for that. Because uh, obviously a couple can go both ways. They can unite and, and take it on together or things like this could tear them further apart. Uh, what were your sort of thoughts and where Paul and Allie are at this stage and you know where their relationship is continuing to grow and, and change and evolve? I feel like Paul and Ali have a really solid relationship fundamentally and they really love each other and make each other laugh and they're good. Um, but this season, yeah, they, they are, a lot of things are thrown at them and um, they have to, they have, they have to keep catching the things that are thrown at them and handling it, which I think they do well, but I feel like through this season, there is a separateness, a slight separateness um, between them that, well, obviously it ends that way as well. There's, there's a choice that has to be made where, you know, Ali has to, to choose sort of to support the son, which they, they all as the family have to choose, you know, choose to separate and to, um, to save their family. So it's about the, the, the things that you have to do to, keep your family together aren't always the things that will immediately keep your family together um so yeah I feel like they go on a real journey in this in this season and they have a much harder time as a as a couple in a sense within their relationship but there's still so much love there which is what I really love about the the writing because it feels real you know yeah and and Martin what was uh sort of your your feeling and and how you wanted where where you wanted this relationship to go in, in the second series well, I think there's just, you know, in any relationship there's been, you know, two people have been together for more than 15 minutes. You, they, they experience a bit of everything. And, and once they're parents, of course, uh, 
there's there's no end to I mean as long as Paul and Ali are together and as long as they're alive that there's no end to the stuff that is going to be happening to them and to exactly. each other and from the outside world and um, as Daisy said you know I've, what I like about it is that it, it's not one dimensional in that you know it's not you know an angry man or a nagging woman or you know like the good cop bad cop sort of thing. it's not just that it's like they both do a bit of everything you know um, and they both really get on you know they uh, they are yeah, friends yeah yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah I, I kind of I think it should just uh, I wanted it to go not that it was just my decision but I, I was very up for it going in whatever direction that was seen fit really um, I think Simon Blackwell is, is very very good at getting to places as a writer where you're taking the audience somewhere that they're not expecting to go um, because you might have just been laughing and then you're crying or, or vice versa, ho hopefully. Um, but I think he's very good at getting you to invest in, in the, these, particularly these four people. There are more than four people in the show, but the, the core, the core four people, some serious stuff happens to everyone, you know, and obviously at the end of season one, some very, very serious stuff happened, like life and death stuff. Yeah. Um, and, and so we try to sort of emulate that, I guess, in series two with, with something that really, really hooks an audience in, hopefully. No, absolutely. Uh, I don't know if you saw the, the marketing for, for the show here in the, the United States. Uh, FX always has these amazing posters. This year, the poster was the two of you, like wearing your kids as backpacks, like holding up. To them. And I thought yeah. it was the perfect sort of imagery for the jump and, and where the show goes this season. Just, it was great. Actually. Yeah, it was a really good visual idea. Yeah. Yeah, and it sort of immediately told told you where, where things were going. Um, yes. One of the things that also I always think about as a parent, and it sort of it comes up in, in Breeders, is that line of, you know, when are you friends? And, and you want to be best friends with your kids, but there is that line. And you, you sort of, you know, it gets harder to walk that line when your kids get older and uh, you know, you, 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 you can't be their friend, but yet now they're walking, talking human beings and you, you want to be their friend even more, but you can't. And I, I love when, you know, Paul's, you know, talking about, you know, I thought we were mates. Uh, uh, I just love whenever, you know, but that, that sort of, you know, question of what is our relationship here? What is our dynamic? Yeah. And it's kind of funny. Throughout all the ages, aren't there? I think. I mean, Daisy's kids in real life are a bit younger than mine, but I think they. I think they. Yeah, I think there's always different versions of that. Like, what to what extent do you want to be a friend, even to a toddler? Yeah, <laughs> what's the balance? Where's the line? What's the balance? It's a permanent. It's like it must be just a. It's a constant thing, isn't it? That you're always trying to get right. I think so. Yeah, I think so. And, and I'm speaking for myself, I'm always you know, trying and succeeding sometimes and failing sometimes and not quite and making mistakes that I know I'm making while I'm making them and I can't <laughs> quite stop myself doing it. Um, yeah, but it's, it's, I suppose it's more, it gets more pronounced, I think, as they get into preteens and teens because they are literally more independent and they're, you know, they're having more of their own friends and sleepovers and parties and stuff like that. So, yeah, that really challenges your, your notion of being a, of being a parent. And being in charge because ultimately you are in charge and you have to be someone's got to be in charge you know um but you're also letting them learn and you're learning yourself with how much leeway you can give them aren't you? um 
Speaking of, uh, so, so I asked you what people, uh, so parents mostly say to you when they watch the show. What about non-parents? What, what uh, you know, people who don't know what it's like to have kids and then they watch breeders. Do you think, have you scared them off from having kids or is it? I had a few messages from people who didn't have kids saying, thank you. I don't feel bad about not having kids now. <laughs> <laughs> thank you for not doing the smug version of parenting, which makes me feel like I'm missing out. Thank you for doing the real version, which makes me think good for you. <laughs> but I'm really glad I didn't do that. <laughs> it's yeah. confirmed something. I've had like three or four people say that to me, which I thought was funny because it wasn't meant to, you know, put people off. <laughs> children. But it's, but I think people that have already made that decision then go, oh, well, that's, yeah, that's all the stuff I don't really want to deal with. <laughs> that's fine. Yeah. I've heard people say that. Yeah, but people say that to me like that. That thing of oh my god, I I don't want kids or you know, and, and, it, and it wasn't designed. Well, it wasn't designed either as a pro or anti thing, really. But um, yeah, it's not designed to make the population drop. You know, I, I, <laughs> I, I hope. Yeah, I, I would hope. I mean, the hope for me is always that, as, as well as the obvious thing about the show, which is you you see adults interacting with children. I think in a way that is fairly rare in a comedic setting. There is also. I hope. I hope there's a lot of <laughs> hugging and uh, kissing and laughter, and I, I hope it's clear that the, the Worsley parents love their kids a lot, you know, um, and the kids love them. But but it definitely comes with complications. But it's it's all born out of love. I mean, there's there's stuff between Paul and Ali this year that you know where Paul is saying, you know, it's out of love, don't you? You know it, and Ali's like, yeah, she, she does. She does know it, but can't you just go six degrees over there? You know, in the way that you. The way that you yeah, 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 and no, and and you can see it, and that's how you really feel for for these characters, especially for for the kids this season. Um, so, where do we go from here? What uh, would you uh, is the plan to do any more time jumps uh, for 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 a third season, or where might the readers go from here? I'm not sure, to be honest. No, I, I'm not sure. I mean, you know. It's just about to come out in the UK now. You know, second series is just about to come out in the UK now. So, um, yeah, we're going to kind of see see where it goes. We we certainly hope well, we'd like to do more. I think, you know. but yeah. I, don't know, I don't know what that would mean in terms of time jumps or anything like that. Yeah, and, and Daisy, your 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 game for for. Uh few more visits with uh, the family oh i'd love to do more it's just a lovely job it's you know you, it's a gift to have such good writing and such a lovely actor to work with all the time <laughs> and such lovely uh, just a lovely you know vibe on on set so i, I should be so lucky yeah I, I didn't realize that it hadn't come out yet in the uk uh the, the, the coming set. out tonight oh wow as we speak yeah yeah, yeah. Oh, very very exciting well uh well, congrats on on the second season. Uh, you know, again, so so personal and and so uh, you know, just you're right. I mean, loving I think is a good way to describe it. Like a real, real, like accurate depiction of you hate your kids one second, you love them the next second, <laughs> hate them again. They hate each other. They hate you. They love you. They it's it's the the complicated relationships and emotions of of parenting, um, but. I would say it's worth it in the end. And, <laughs> and we can see it on Breeders, uh, on FX here in the United States. Martin and Daisy, thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks so much. Season two of Breeders is now streaming on FX on Hulu.
And that's it for this edition of Variety's Award Circuit Podcast. Drew Griffith edited this episode and Michael Schneider is the producer. Be sure to subscribe to the Award Circuit Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you download podcasts. Also, head on over to Variety.com and click on the Award Circuit tab to find the latest Emmy predictions and key races, as well as your daily fix of news, analysis, and reviews. For Danielle Terciano and Jazz Tanke, I'm Michael Schneider, and we'll see you on the circuit. For your Emmy Awards consideration, ABC's number one comedy, The Connors, starring John Goodman, Laurie Metcalf, Sarah Gilbert, and Lacey Gorenson, about the iconic working-class family who face life with love, humor, and perseverance. The Los Angeles Times describes The Connors as finding laughter and light in the darkness, and Decider writes that the show is what a great sitcom looks like. The Connors, eligible for outstanding comedy series and in all eligible categories. Television Academy members can view full episodes at abcfyc.com. America, we are endowed by our creator with certain unalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. By honoring your career calling, you impact your family, your friends, and your community. The pursuit to serve others is yours. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu.